Hi, and welcome to another episode of FortiGuard Live. I'm Anthony Genomenico, a.k.a. Tony G. I do a lot of really cool cybersecurity stuff here at Fortinet. One happens to be running our incident response practices globally. Also, our managed detection and response services globally. And with me here today, I have the mainstay on this series show, Omar Lakani, a.k.a. Dr. Chaos. How you doing, my friend? Hey, I'm good, Tony. Always good to be here with you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, we got some cool stuff that I think we both are really excited about talking about uh, during this episode. We're not going to focus on attacks, but I think what we want to do is focus on, because it's been almost half a year of 2022, where we're, we're five months into it. So I want to talk a little bit about what are some of the trends, some things that might be unique around tactics and corresponding techniques. So I have a few thoughts. So what I want to sort of share what we're seeing within our incident response, but I wanted to kind of get your sort of take on this stuff in FortiGuard Labs. Well, Tony, you know, when we talk about initial um, access to attacks, right? We always have the traditional things like like phishing emails, uh, denial service, we see ransomware. But you know, a couple of things that I'm starting to see that are, I wouldn't say new, but like I'm seeing more and more of it that I hadn't seen in the past is hardware, uh, hardware attacks, hardware additions, people actually modifying hardware and getting access to systems. That's kind of cool. It's more like a, a spy James Bond kind of thing. Of course, we're still seeing a lot of exploits on public applications. With everyone going to the cloud, it means your applications are automatically public and attackers are using that. And then, of course, we're still seeing attacks against valid accounts that a lot of um, attackers, threat actors, are buying valid accounts from multiple data leaks. But, you know, one thing that's kind of got me personally interested, the holy grail of attacks is zero-click attacks. And what a zero-click attack is, is it's essentially a zero-day that requires no user interaction. Mm. And what that means is there's no way to train your users against stopping that attack. A phishing attack can maybe eventually train your users to say, look out for these red flags. There are no red flags against zero-click attacks. Now, luckily, like it's not widespread or anything, so don't want anyone to panic. You really do have to take advantage of a zero-day to get a zero-click attack. But it's something that I'm definitely keeping my eyes on. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I do want to, um, uh, you know, definitely want to talk a little bit more about two of those things that you mentioned, because uh, we're seeing the same thing, you know, in the trenches. You know, with incident response, um, one where we, you know, we are seeing a lot of stolen credentials. Uh, you know, we work with our 40 recon folks to, uh, you know, search the dark net and we're constantly finding additional, uh, you know, credentials that are stolen when we're in the middle of our investigation it really kind of helps us out. But the one other thing you mentioned as well is exploiting externally public, uh, you know, facing services and applications. I know. We say it over and over and over again. I get it, but hear me out here. One of the things that we're starting to discover, at least for the first uh, half of this year, uh, is uh, organizations don't necessarily have a bad patch management program, right? They're patching fairly quickly. What they don't have is the visibility into what's happening externally or what's available out there. What are they supposed to be protecting? Great example of this, we'll follow the breadcrumbs in an incident response investigation and it'll lead us down to, let's say, I don't know, a Citrix server. And then we know that that Citrix server is vulnerable. We'll ask them, hey, you got to patch that, patch that now. And, oh, oh, hey, you have, you know, how many more do you have? Oh, I have, the, you know, these two. Okay, go ahead and patch those. Any more? Nope. 
As we go along, we find a string, we start pulling that string a little bit more. Next thing we know, we follow the breadcrumbs again. It leads us down into another Citrix server, the same vulnerability that they didn't even know even existed. So the point here is maybe looking at uh, organizations can have can, uh, help. What can help organizations is external attack surface management, like looking at these types of services to get a better picture uh, what they're seeing, or at least uh, what's available to their organization externally that anybody has access to be able to possibly be able to compromise. Yeah, Tony, just to build on that a little bit. So you mentioned Citrix servers. I want to really build on, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm seeing is, um, you know, any public server. So most of the time when you have a public server, it's running on a platform, whether it's a cloud platform or whether it's a virtual platform. So a lot of people, they have like multiple public applications, but they also have that management of that platform, whether mm -hmm. it's a, uh, you know, someone like VMware, Citrix, uh, AWS. Uh, and a lot of people are kind of forgetting to uh, secure that management of that platform and that's yeah. that's dangerous because that means not only do they have access to uh, one not, not only just one public application but multiple public applications because you're obviously running an infrastructure behind that and what we're seeing more and more of uh, basically from our threat research side is we're seeing attackers focus on exploits on, on the virtual um, on the hypervisor side essentially if they can get into the hypervisor side if they can exploit the management of the, the virtual environment and all of a sudden they're in multiple environments and it's good to go now it's like kind of pick and choose for them on like what they want to exploit and what they want to like just skip ahead and it's too hard for them amazing great segue into once they're in the network what are they doing you know where are they sort of focusing in on and i will i will uh i will double down on what you just said, and I'll, we are seeing that as well. In the trenches, we're seeing, you know, let's just kind of follow this here. You know, maybe it's a Citrix server, they got the right sort of credentials. Those credentials then also are able to get into the admins uh, of, you know, your ESXIs of the world and all these other sort of VM instances, and they're encrypting that particular file, uh, you know, the image file themselves instead of the actual files within the image. We're seeing a lot of that, right? Like you said, they lock them out. Um, so those are things that the, you want to probably pay a little bit more close attention to. Those, uh, you know, VMs and not you know, not only you know the VM environments. I think you mentioned just access to uh, the management consoles for everything. Because there's been a couple of times where you know we get in there and uh, they're like, "Hey, why didn't this security control identify this?" You know. Then we go and look, adversary had access, had admin access from maybe an Active Directory account, which then logged in uh, that same credentials were used for the management console for say the endpoint sec you know, uh, security. They shut all that stuff down. Hey, they can do whatever they want, right? I mean, they got keys to the kingdom. So yeah, that was yeah, one thing. Yeah, so just to recap, so far what we're saying is how do attackers initially get in? Well, they're using the traditional methods of like phishing attacks, uh, passwords, stolen credentials, maybe hardware additions. That's how they're getting in. They're exploiting systems now. They're exploiting public-facing applications, or they're exploiting you know zero days in some cases, or maybe just like a vulnerabilities like CVE vulnerabilities. So now that you know they get into systems, they're in systems exploiting applications, and then what they do is when they get in, they're trying to make the most impact, right? And what is that impact? Well, they're attacking uh, virtual machines. They're attacking um, you know uh, servers that have large impact, and you're going to know. This, right or you're going to or they're at least going to start taking information out of that uh, you know using it to their advantage whether they're selling that or going to uh, later on ransom that to you or whatever the case may be 
Now, with that, though, at the same time, you know, they probably want to be the actions that they take. I want to make it 100% clear. They're not super stealthy. They make noise, right? They will create digital dust, as I like to say. So if you're doing the right monitoring, you're going to be able to identify this stuff. Um, so what I've seen and I wanted to talk a little bit about persistencies and what are some of the things that, can, that they're kind of doing. And uh, I usually talk about scheduled tasks, maybe being sort of dropped from Active Directory with group policies or maybe, you know, you know, PS exec, then they're, they're, you know, starting, they're kind of copying malware over to a new you know, system, starting it up as a running new, uh, you know, you know, service so it can survive a reboot or maybe modifying and, eh, you know, that stuff still happens. But, uh, you know, what about this, Amar? I think they are getting so uh, successful at establishing C2s uh, they'll have 10 or even more C2s, you know, communicating back, right, to their command and control infrastructure. They're just going to forego some of those traditional persistencies because, look, hey, if five of them get caught, they still got five more that they can do. And then while you're figuring out those other, you know, five, they probably added another five or six more. So uh, that also, you know, I... I wouldn't say it's lazy. I think uh, they, if they can minimize uh, their activity, right? Because everything they do makes noise. If they can minimize it by still achieving the same goal, eh, you know, more power to them, you know? Yeah, so absolutely. So a lot of times when we're investigating systems to see if they're compromised, you're looking at like, you know, these little pieces of digital dust, as you said, you're looking at things like, hey, is there persistence? Is there registry changes? Um, you know, whatever they could be. And normally attackers have, do want persistence, right? Because they want to survive a reboot. They want to make sure that they're still on systems. But what's happening these days is that attackers know you're looking for that. So they really don't care about persistence because they don't care if they lose connection to one box because they have like hundreds of boxes uh, compromised in an organization that are connected back to them. So even if they lose connection to one box, when that one system comes back up, they're just using one of their other connections to reestablish uh, command and control. So now it's all in memory. There's like it's very difficult to do forensics. It's very difficult to do threat hunting against those systems. And attackers are just basically it's so easy for them. They don't even care about like establishing persistence to go back into the system because they figure they're always going to have some vulnerability to connect point. Yeah, Omar, are you are you telling me that we should have a new technique under persistence for the MITRE ATT&CK framework that says multiple C2s? Uh, I don't think that's exactly what I said, but sure, why not? That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> awesome, awesome. You know, one thing I wanted to mention, I know we're talking about, you know, sort of techniques, um, you know, whatnot, but on the defensive side, if we still stay on the actual subject of multiple C2s. One of the things that, you know, we see a lot of organizations not necessarily kind of doing, and you probably could do that, really save yourself a lot of time is on, you know, whatever servers you have in your environment, if they don't need access out to the internet, don't give them access, right? Don't kind of give the, you know, the actual sort of threat actor also a path in to those particular servers. Obviously, some servers may need access out to the internet. Identify what that limited access is and really be able to condense it down to just that and then flag on anything that you may sort of see on your edge, you know, perimeter devices that it may be trying to, you know, communicate out with. It may be one, a misconfiguration or it may be something anomalous that you probably want to dive into because, I don't know, maybe it is something malicious. 
Now, Tony, I, I would I do agree with you, at least in principle, but I would say that like a lot of organizations have a hard time with that just because of the amount of cloud applications and public applications that they have. I think it's also time to start thinking about actually putting in honeypots and enterprises. And I'm a big fan of that because it's almost like an early warning detection system. It's like a landmine. If someone is scanning that or or uh, on a system that you actually should have no one on, it shouldn't be you know public public anywhere. It shouldn't be advertised in any directory. And if someone's logging onto that, it, it shows you that someone is actually inside your systems or possibly causing a threat. And and I think it's really important to like start going from some of these. Uh, I would say uh, fringe technologies, you know, such, such as automation, AI, uh, threat hunting, automation, um, honeypots deception technologies, I think it's time to start looking at that in mainstream as a defensive solution. Yeah, it's almost like it's the uh, it's a first level analyst, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, I think I think that that automation kind of, you know, that automation message there is pretty important because, I, you know, we've seen also, uh, you know, in the trenches, you know, with our incident response and a lot of automation around the, you know, the collection of actual data to a you know a collection server they're finding a server of course that's sort of stable has access out to the internet um all that whole process of scanning uh all the different uh, at, kind of assets and then grabbing certain files consolidating them in one location and then exfilling them out a lot of that these days is already automated um so making sure that we have that same auto you know automation only makes sense Absolutely. You just uh, need to add another another tool in the belt, uh, you know, for defense. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So, so I know we don't have much more time here, but, uh, you know, what do you think? Any parting thoughts, uh, you know, maybe around, you know, any other, you know, defensive uh, things or any kind of nuggets or kind of key takeaways that you know, we might want to share with the audience? Uh, I always have a lot of parting thoughts and uh, they usually start off with like, you know, uh, putting your head in the sand, putting a paper bag on, uh, unplugging the internet. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not a, that's not a, a, a good enough solution. I think what I always say is usually the basics, the basics of uh, the things that you can do with cybersecurity are always most effective. You said a lot of people are getting better at, uh, at uh, patching, which was always like a big thing for me, that um, a big failure that I saw with most organizations. I think the next thing people need to start working on, as you mentioned as well, is visibility. Like knowing like what your systems are doing, what kind of access do they need, what kind of like ports do they need, what kind of traffic do they actually communicate with, and uh, really understanding that and keeping an eye on that. I think starting to base traffic is the next step that uh, organizations need to start doing. Yeah, you know, I think you pretty much recapped what we were talking about. Um, I do like, I think you were kind of leading towards identifying the, you know, the different types of attack paths. I thought that was kind of a key one. I used to talk about that a lot. And then I kind of, you know, I stopped for, you know, probably sort of for a few years. Uh, but I think it's an important message. It's a nail home. Understanding the adversary's kind of attack paths to the you know crown jewels, I think, is really important. I think you kind of alluded to just kind of making sure you know you know your assets, you know how they you know communicate and where are they being able to you know communicate to. I think when you identify the vulnerabilities on those clicker systems, you can see the hops from you know from path to path as far as what an adversary might sort of take. Having that information might uh, kind of sort of at least be able to tip you off on where you want to kind of look if you are trying to hunt for the adversary in your environment. Absolutely. The, the threat hunters, uh, the threat actors are going for shortest path of success as well. You know, so uh, you, you should know that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that's uh, all the time we have. I think I'm getting the curtain call here. So, hey, Amar, 
you know, it's always a pleasure actually uh, having these conversations with you, bro. I know we have a lot of them off, you know, off, you know, offline, and I can't wait until we have an opportunity to be on one of these things again. So really appreciate it, bro. Yeah, dude, I'm gonna call you out. Are, are we supposed to do like a podcast together or something? Or yeah, we're probably supposed to do a few more. So let's make sure we do that on our checklist, man. Well, you know, folks, thank you so much. So until next time, it's another episode of Fortigard Live, and I'm, you know, Tony G, and we'll see you soon. All right, guys.